welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being. In this episode, we'll be talking about how you can prepare for a second wave of COVID-19. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a GP by training with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is absolutely at the front of everyone's minds at the moment. The first wave of COVID-19 was a bit like working in a war zone, but now many clinicians have had the opportunity to return to something that looks a little bit like normal life, with the prospect of going back into the war zone and the winter pressures and the next wave of COVID hitting the NHS. How can people prepare and what can they learn from the military experience of redeployment? We're delighted to have on the podcast today a clinician who specialises in mental health and who's seen active military service and who's been on the podcast before. Welcome Major Cormac Doyle. Yeah, my name is Cormac Doyle. I'm a retired Army Major. I served 25 years both in the Royal Air Force and unilaterally the Army. I work as a mental health practitioner and I currently work as a psychological trauma uh, clinician looking after veterans with mental health problems and I run a private practice in Derbyshire. Brilliant. So today we wanted to talk to you Cormac because it looks like we might be heading for a second wave of COVID-19 and obviously that might be quite a daunting prospect for clinicians who've already worked through the first wave that we'd experienced and I wondered if there were any parallels that could be drawn between what those clinicians are preparing for and maybe people in the military when they prepare for perhaps a second deployment? Um, I mean, it's a really good question. I think it's really important for people involved in this pandemic to remember that they have come so far in such a short period of time. There will not be a doctor, nurses, healthcare worker, any allied individual who has not learned something. And what we've learned about experiences you learn about yourself and you learn about other people and although there is a comparison with people going back on second secondary or second military operations people coming back into the second wave of covid they're actually coming back with a wealth of experience and as much as i will uh, acknowledge there will be a certain degree of anxiety and stress associated with this we need to let people recognize that they have learned and this is what's important Currently, when you read the press, the press is very negative. It kind of uh, doesn't paint a very good picture. But I think as medical professionals, we've always been very good at adapting extremely well to changing environments. Uh, And as we said earlier on, it's it's all about the adaptation. People with um, erstwhile experience will do two things. They'll go back into that environment. They'll get involved in working with teams again. But rather than to get to know the teams over a slower period of time, it'll something that'll ingrain and happen really, really fast because they will bring their strengths and their weaknesses uh, and they'll share what their strengths are and what they need to learn. And, and, and it'll be kind of a, a learning environment with, because people will know exactly what the focus is. When COVID started, it was very much the shock and awe. What is this? Is this suddenly hit the country? The shock and awe has now gone. And in terms of what we would, a phrase we'd use in the military, we now have a battle rhythm. Okay, so the scene is set. We know what the identifiable enemy is. This is COVID. Uh, and how are we going to take this on? And one thing about battle rhythm, it encourages people also to, to work hard, but also to recognize the importance of having respite and recuperation. So that when you do go home, you spend time with your family, you rest, you recuperate. Um, and you don't allow the whole concept of COVID dominate your entire life. 
This is something that we're having to adapt to both professionally and personally. And the fact that we're going to adapt to it means we got a better chance of actually defeating it. And, and I think that's the way the focus should be for this. Thanks, Cormac. It's really nice to hear someone talking positively about the benefits of this being the second wave and, and the learning and that's gone on so far. Uh, and it's absolutely true from a scientific perspective that we, we know a lot more now about how to respond and how to treat people. And, and we have a, a wealth of evidence that we didn't have before. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said about um, people having to bring their learning and their strengths and their weaknesses to the teens. But do you have any suggestions for how clinicians can um, speed up that process and help kind of recognise that learning? I'm a, I'm a firm believer in people keeping diaries. Now, as you know, both professionally within with all medical professions, we always have reflective practice. Uh, and sometimes when you ask people to reflect on something, they actually struggle with the whole concept of reflective practice. I would encourage everybody to keep a diary. So you can, re, you can look at your diary that you started six months ago and you can read about your anxieties and your fears about entering this COVID ward. And suddenly you're going, okay, I was very anxious there. Yeah, I now have concerns I'm going back in again, but look what I've actually learned. And it's not, to be, it's not that you become desensitized to it. It's because you've adapted to it. If, if you think about survival of the fittest, okay, it's, it's not about intelligence. It's how you adapt to your change. And I think as human beings, having this cognitive process of being able to write stuff is really important. Let me give you a kind of an analogy. Um, Shackleton uh, and his ship, they, they were stuck for two years in the South Atlantic. And he kept everybody alive because they adapted to their environment. But also he, he demonstrated incredible effective leadership. So he brought back his entire crew of 28 men, both physically and mentally well. That is a massive achievement. So if Shackleton can do it down in the South Atlantic, I'm sure what we can do is even better. It really and truly is. And, uh, and although you've kind of mentioned about what we bring in it, it, what boils down to this and makes all of this success is the effectiveness, effectiveness of leadership. If you have a leader who can stand up and go, this is our mission intent, this is how we're going to achieve it. Give people a clear understanding of the direction which they're going to follow. That's number one. Number two, there has got to be transparency in every piece of information that a leader gives you. Okay, So you don't walk away going, what do you say? Did I understand that? There has to be no ambiguity in it whatsoever. Number three, there has to be effective communication within teams. So as much as you're going back into a team environment, and trust me, doctors and nurses will have learned this such importance of effective communication. That is absolutely paramount. Uh, and then there is kind of um, having empathy with your team. Whether you're the team leader or you're a member of a team, you've got to have empathy to know that some days you will have a bad day. Some days somebody else will have a bad day. You don't take their bad day as a personal gripe at you you just need to acknowledge they're having a bad day they're tired or fatigued because we have to accept that clinicians also have a life outside of the clinical world they've got partners dogs cats children grandchildren some doctors got great grandchildren okay so we've got all the other stresses that go with life and bring it together we have to make sure that COVID is our professional work, but we should not be allowing COVID to dominate our entire life. We have to adapt to it. And I think collectively, when you have uh, the health service and the private health service working collaboratively um, and reacting to the science associated with this, it means our, the journey through the second wave for the vast majority of people 
should be a lot easier. I mean, if you think about the experience a newly qualified nurse in January has compared to now and what she, he or she has learned in 10 months, you look at the doctor who has been on the ward or has graduated and suddenly what has he learned in ten, in, 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 over the last 10 months? This is an experience that really is not quantifiable yet. I'm sure somebody will come up with an incredible complicated algorithm that will show us how we can learn from this experience exponentially. But I think um, it, it's all about learning, as I said, the adaptability. And I think that should be the focus for it. But but again, I will reiterate, everybody should keep a diary, even if you only write for five minutes. And and it's, it's also, there's another reason why you should keep a diary. For your children and your grandchildren, in 10 years time, this is going to be a GCSE t- subject. So you can say to your kids, well, here's my diary. Um, I've been encouraging my kids to keep a diary as well because this is something that collectively the nation needs to learn about. And, you know, we often have people writing about uh, what happened in World War One and stories from the front line. Trust me, in 100 years time, somebody will be writing a book about stories from the COVID front line. Oh, I completely agree. I think that's a really interesting point. I just wanted to go back, Cormac, to something you said there about a newly qualified nurse. And we've spoken a bit about people who have already experienced the first wave and are maybe anticipating the second wave. But I wonder if there's any advice for maybe newly qualified doctors or nurses or other clinicians who, for them, this is the first time they're experiencing working in the pandemic. Is there anything that can help them prepare? Um, I think it's attitude. Uh, when you come into any new um, environment, and we all know the newly qualified doctor and the newly qualified nurse, they have the cure for everything. They are going to come in, dominate and change everything to do with their learning environment. I mean, that was the enthusiasm I started as a staff nurse. And to a certain degree, after all these years, I still have it. But I think it's very important that when you go into a new environment, you need to be very humble and recognize that you're working with people who've got far more experience so the doctor who walks in the ward, who is dealing with the healthcare assistant, who's been on that ward for 10 months, he needs to acknowledge she has far more experience in aspects of dealing with COVID than he has. The very same as the newly qualified nurse walking on. Um, you've got to interact with the porters. The porters, I mean, they're the unsung heroes of an awful lot of work that's gone on inside the hospitals. And you must be humble in that environment. And when you're humble, and you come across as being humble, you will find that people will impart information to you very, very quickly. And again, embrace the aspect of a teamwork. Don't, if ever there's been the time for people to leave the egos at the front door, this is it. There should be no egos during war. There should be no egos during pandemics. This is collective teamwork with effective leadership. And I think for the newly qualified doctor, the newly qualified nurse, or even the the new healthcare assistant starting, they're about to go on a journey working with other people who've already been on the journey for 10 months. If you want to learn about traveling, speak to travelers. Don't don't just pick up a book book and think you can read about it. You need to speak and get that experience. And that's the advice I give to anybody new going into that environment. Um, I have been working with some newly qualified doctors and newly qualified nurses recently, and that's the message I've been giving them. You know, I can understand your enthusiasm. I can understand your anxiety. You know, if, if anybody was to say they don't feel anxious going to a COVID ward, I would really have concerns because we know that with survival of the fittest, if you have a certain degree of anxiety, you're acknowledging, one, there is a fear here. And that's really, really important. And two, you're not being complacent because when you're being complacent with everything, that's when mistakes actually happen. So to acknowledge that you've got a certain degree of anxiety 
proves that you're taking what you're doing quite seriously. And again, you know, some people said to me, I've been, you know, when I went to war, I was never frightened or scared. Either they're very unusual or they're being disingenuous because trust me, anybody who's been through a firefight and says it didn't affect him emotionally, uh, I think they're a little bit disingenuous. And, you know, doctors talk about the first time that they've been on wards. I mean, I've been speaking to kind of experienced doctors and consultants. Again, you know, you look at the concept of the consultant. He is the person with all the answers. He, he is the man that you go to. And yet they're describing, I've been absolutely petrified on a day to going into work, waking up. And the first thing that enters my head first thing in the morning is, my God, I've got to go and do this again. But as time goes on and develop their resilience, that no longer becomes a fear. Because, and I say to people, you know, when you wake up in the morning, question you ask yourself is, what did I learn yesterday that I can do different today? Or what did I learn yesterday that I can impart to somebody today? And by imparting that information, we're going to improve the lives of all the patients we're looking after and look after our own mental health as well, which is very important. Cormac, you mentioned some really important strategies there for for improving your resilience and, and managing that anxiety. And I think it's really important for us to normalise how how widespread it is to be anxious and it is a sign that you're recognising the severity of the situation. Um, but that anxiety, as, as we know, can be overwhelming uh, and can be very destructive. So what, what are the other strategies people can, can use to try and um, help harness that positively and, and stop themselves from being in, in overwhelmed? In terms of uh, what we can do as professionals, doctors, nurses, etc., um, we, we are all subjected to clinical supervision. Uh, and some clinicians find clinical supervision the most stressful thing to go through. I think this is the time where you need to be able to identify and have a relationship either with your clinical supervisor or with another individual or maybe a group of individuals where you can sit down freely and talk about how you feel without being worried about chastisement, without people passing aspirations about whether you're well enough to do your job or not. Uh, And Kath, you are right. It can be absolutely overwhelming to the point of being disabled. Um, where people feel this kind of intense freeze that they just cannot face this work anymore. Once you have a line of communication that's effective, that's non-critical, that's supportive, um, and that gives time, and and time is really the important thing. Uh, If you're having clinical supervision and your supervisor says, look, we've only got 10 minutes, that closes you down completely. This has got to be planned and it's got to be structured. Uh, And I've always encouraged people, you know, if you're going to use clinical supervision, it doesn't have to be in the hospital or on the ward. There's nothing wrong with going for a cup of coffee, of going for a walk in the park. This is what we need to be doing. We need to be adapting and changing the whole time. For people who are overwhelmed, um, people need to take time out for themselves during the day. 10 minutes of breathing exercises, 10 minutes of mindfulness, uh, 10 minutes of listening to bilateral music, which I've spoken about before. These are techniques that work very effectively. When anxiety is overwhelming, some people will say, I find it very hard to do. But the science tells us that you get yourself in the rhythm of doing it for 10 minutes a day for 21 days in a row. You've changed the pattern inside your head. And, and as we know, we can all struggle. It's like uh, I'm trying to stick to a diet after four days. Actually, I want to have a bar of chocolate. It's getting yourself into the habit of sticking to it. And once you stick to it, that's where it'll actually change. What I have actually found in the environments that I've been working in, uh, we have a, I don't know where you have them in the NHS now, we have buzz meetings where people sit down and talk, but there's always time afterwards for people just to have a general chit chat. And what is interesting, at the beginning of COVID, 
that chit-chat afterwards would take about an hour. And now it takes about 10 minutes because people have learned and the team is incredibly, incredibly cohesive. And, and that's the trick. And for people who are experiencing that incredible, um, overwhelming feeling of, of, of um, anxiety and so forth, uh, it will pass. It will pass and it will pass when you acknowledge what you're going through. I have the greatest respect for the person who puts their hand up and says to me, I'm struggling at the moment because they're acknowledging there's a struggle. And we know that when people struggle, there's a higher risk of things actually going wrong. So this is all against mitigating against risk. And again, it goes back to this effect of leadership. And leaders, leaders should be saying to people, uh, it's not a case of if you've had your break today. I want to know when did you have your break? How long did you have a break for? Did you have coffee? Were you sitting by yourself? Did you sit together as a group? This is what makes the success of what we're trying to achieve work, is when we have this collaborative working practice. And at the same time, the leader who stands up has got to also show the example of he's not working 14 hours a day. He's actually saying to people, uh, I'm actually going to go and have my lunch now. Or he says at the end of his shift, I am going home. And you know something? I trust you guys to continue. And this is what it's all about. Cool, Mac. We've spoken a bit about resilience and what individuals can do to help themselves. But that seems to put quite a lot of emphasis on individuals doing things on their own. Is there anything that systems can do to help clinicians in these environments? Organisations need to have in place uh, very simple things. They need to make sure that one, that people get time off. That's really important. That has to be monitored. Because we know that very dedicated clinicians will keep working and working and working. Uh, and we live in an environment where uh, the whole concept of risk assessment and risk management has never been at the forefront. I mean, it really truly is. I think effective leaders need to make sure that time breaks are being adhered to, that people are having time to go home to their families. They're going on holidays. Uh, I think we need to look at people who take on-call duties. Nobody should be on-call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's actually not good for your health. We need to be able to, organizations need to say, look, you're off this weekend. You will not be contacted. We have a backup plan. Uh, we have something else in place. Another thing that uh, clinicians need to mitigate against is going home and carrying the stress with them. So it's very important to do a check before you leave your building to go home. Ask yourself three questions. I've always been a firm believer in this. One, what did I learn new today that I can use tomorrow? That is fundamentally important. Now, whether that's something you've learned new about yourself, about the organization, about a clinical decision, about interacting with somebody or about a communication skills. So that's number one. Number two, what information have I passed on today that has enriched the life of somebody, whether that is a patient, a colleague, a relative? What have I done that's made their life somewhat easier? And number three, as you walk out, go, did I do any harm? And I think it's fair to say the vast majority of clinicians do not do any harm. And the reason that should always be the last question is when you leave, actually, I did no harm today. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I might be a little bit irritable, but I have done no harm. And when you can say to yourself, I've done no harm, you actually leave on an emotional high going, this is good. I've done no harm. Everything is safe. Just something, I'm going to come back and do it again in the morning. So by the time you get home, you've processed all the information. You've gone in and your wife says, how's your day been? And you go, it's been all right. And the kids can jump all over you and cause havoc. It makes no difference whatsoever. 
Thank you, Cormac. That's a really um, helpful way to look at it. I, I sometimes find myself beating myself up at the end of the day because of all the things that I could have done or I haven't done. Um, but, you know, as long as the kids are still alive, then <laughs> that's a good day. <laughs> so. Well, I, I, to be fair, recently, I, because of the slight changes in restrictions, I've been able to go and see my grandchildren. Uh, and I've, all, well, I've always loved my grandchildren. Of course I have. But the time I spend with them now is... So enriched. I've got a four-year-old grandson by the name of Max. And to describe him as being bright is just, is understating it. Because he's such a joy to be with. And he sees the world in a very, very simple way. Uh, and I think when you, when you go back and you spend time interacting, listen to what your children have to say. Because your children will keep you incredibly grounded. And they don't, they don't have this filter. They'll just say things directly to you and you go, yeah, you're right. I kind of, kind of uh, granddad, are you grumpy? No. Yes, you are. Yep. Okay, I'm grumpy. Whereas a colleague will kind of play around with it. Are you not feeling too well? No, kids no filter straight to the point. And I think by keeping yourself grounded throughout this entire thing, is it's incredibly, incredibly important. So whether it's your grandchild or your child that doesn't, uh, or... Um, somebody else keeps you grounded. It's really important to kind of have that balance. Can we talk about that a bit more, Cormac? Because when you were talking earlier about the importance of admitting that you're struggling, I was just thinking how incredibly difficult that can be um, because you feel like you're admitting to failure or, you know, that you're not... Um, you know, you should be able to cope or that everyone else is coping and, and you're the kind of weak link in, in the chain. Um, so what can colleagues and teams and leaders do to help make it a bit easier for people to speak up and say, actually, do you know what, right now I'm, I'm really struggling? Kath, I think in the nutshell, you're actually referring to kind of the whole concept of stigma. Mm. Um, nobody wants to say I'm struggling because, as you say, I'm weak, I'm not good enough and so forth. Um, I think the organization, and I keep going back to this, it's all about risk assessment. And if you say to people, you know, if you are tired, if you are fatigued, you need to tell me because we need to mitigate against risk. And I think if, if the organization takes the approach and gets everybody to embrace it, by having free flow communication, you're going to stop difficult situations from developing. That in itself should be the encouraging environment. You know, we have um, leaders who will stand up and go, I, I've worked with leaders who go, I, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. If I'm grumpy, I do apologize. And I think, I'm not saying that every leader's got to hold their hand up and say, I'm struggling, because, you know, a lot of leaders won't, because they're, they're not. But I think within a team, if you have an environment where you can decompress, sit down and have a cup of coffee and have an open conversation and say, I'm tired and I'm fatigued, uh, people will, will buy into it. And I think, Kath, essentially, it's it's one of these very difficult situations. You and I can talk about this and say, well, this is how you should do it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen because it's going to be up to an individual. But I think if an individual genuinely knew that their fatigue, their tiredness, their anxiety was going to make a mistake, then I think that's the different approach it would take. And you'll find that when people have a natural fire break, they recuperate and come back, bounce back very quickly. I was going to say that was me yesterday, but I didn't say I was fired. I think I told Kat that I was tired. So, um, and, cool. and and I assume Kath went, you need to, to take some rest. I did. And she then did. Abby went for made herself go for a run. And so. I went for a run. But Cormac, I wanted to just, just ask you briefly on 
we talk a lot about leaders and what leaders can do, but I guess in our context, in our context, leaders will also be clinicians. So there might be GP partners or consultants for leading teams, and that might feel like quite a heavy load to bear. Is there any way that they could make sure they look after themselves? This is all about self-care. Uh, each individual has a responsibility for their own self-care. If you are an effective leader, um, then you won't have any problem with self-care because you're automatically doing it. If you are somebody who says you're an effective leader, but you're neglecting yourself, then the onus is actually on you, to be honest. This is all very simple. And like we said earlier on, 10 minutes mindfulness, 10 minutes having a cup of coffee with a colleague. Uh, and remember, leaders also need to be able to speak to somebody. Uh, and, and they don't have to speak to somebody senior or somebody beside. They could be speaking to somebody below, just where they can have that environment where they can where, where they can talk. Um, leaders are unique individuals because their job is to inspire. And you will find that somebody who's inspirational, they've got a very balanced life anyway. They they play sport. They spend time with the family. They're they're up to date on their clinical work. They're up to date on their note keeping and so forth. I think uh, what we have seen through this period, I remember doing a presentation to NHS Scotland. I said, people who will start off with this pandemic as effective leaders will fall because they're not as effective as they thought they were. And the person you least expect to be a leader comes to the front so fast, it's incredible. Um, and I've seen this happen a lot. Uh, I've known some very strong, effective nurse leaders uh, succumbed to the pressure of COVID. I've seen nurses regarded as being the average nurse step up and become the most effective leaders. Uh, but when you look at those individuals who step forward, they have the balanced life. They look after themselves, they go running, and they meet up with people for coffee. Admittedly, during pandemic, meeting somebody for coffee has been quite odd. But uh, I think um, even having coffee over Zoom is something that you can do just effectively. We also have to remember that as leaders, you cannot live in isolation. Some people are of the uh, impression that because I'm a leader, um, I have to stand tall above everybody else. Uh, no, you don't. Uh, you are a human being who has leadership skills. And as a human being, you still need social interaction. You need to have humor. You need to have time to be able to reflect. You need to have time to talk. And also, you've got to make sure that you're not such an arrogant leader that people can still joke with you because humor is absolutely fundamentally important to keep the human spirit going. We talk in the military about having gallow humor or black humor, uh, and that's something that exists with the police, the prison service, the, 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 the fire service, the ambulance service. Uh, and let's be honest, within doctors and nurses, we also have that gallow humour as well. And it's not that we're being disrespectful. It is our way of actually coping with unimaginable stresses that come along. But by being able to be respectful and have humour, uh, we're actually maintaining our mental health. Brilliant. I think that's quite a nice place yeah. to end, actually. I was going to say the same thing. That's a lovely note to end yeah. on. Bit of black humour. <laughs> Well, Kat, I thought that was really interesting. It was great to speak to Cormac again. He's got such a wealth of um, experience. I think he made a load of really good points, especially about leadership and the need to be adaptable. But I really liked his, his point about keeping a diary because that seems like a really simple but useful thing that everybody can do. 
Absolutely. Um, the simple things he mentioned, like keeping a diary or the 10 minutes of mindfulness, I, I think those are really great tips. I guess my worry is that um, when I feel under pressure and I'm sort of struggling to cope with work and life at home, um, the, even the idea of making 10 minutes for myself to write a diary seems like just something that I can't fit in. Um, which I guess is just a marker of how important it really is to create that time. Um, and that maybe it's those aren't the answers for you and that we have to think about what is it that gives us that most, uh, what, it's, what gives us that moment of self-care and space to reflect most effectively. For me, I expect it's probably talking to somebody because I'm more verbal than written in the way I like to process things. Um, it might not be mindfulness, but it might be yoga, which is something that I find really helpful. So I think what I want to take from that is not just to um, not just to do the strategies that other people recommend, but to try and work out what, what really works for you on a personal level. What do you think about that? I think you make a really good point that at times of stress, it is those tools that you've tried to put in place to help your well-being that end up slipping because you feel like you don't have time for them. And I can absolutely see that those those things might seem less important if we go back into a second wave and people are working extremely hard and I think it's often hard to remind yourself that actually your caring for yourself is as important as it as is caring for other people and I hope that you know Cormac talked a lot about what people have learned from the first wave of Covid and I hope that organisations learn that the things that they did provide during the first wave such as hot food and places for doctors to rest helped enough that they will if not reintroduce them but at least you know make small similar changes that can help clinicians and in that same vein I hope people have learned that they do need to look after themselves or how important it is to look after themselves to keep going but I do know how difficult that is when you're under huge amounts of pressure. Yeah absolutely and I think um, COVID uh, sorry I think um, Cormac talked to us about um, secondary care and the you know the sort of stresses and strains of being on a COVID ward or in an operating theatre but um, it was making me think as well about about primary care um, where you may be working in a different way such as you know Zoom calls all day but it's equally stressful um, in its own way and it has different pressures and strains um, and I think often there is less support um, and less opportunity to connect with your team or um, to to have those moments where you, you can say you're struggling because who do you say that to if you're working in isolation who can you hold up your hand to and say do you know what I can't do this anymore and I think we need to work really hard to make sure that um, everyone across um, community healthcare provision as well as secondary care provision is is able to feel that there is some safety net for them and although their roles are really critical and the work they're doing is really important you know it's so much it's so vital to be able to say do you know what I just need an hour off or I just need an afternoon off and then I will be able to step back into the fray tomorrow um, rather than just to keep going until they run themselves completely into the ground um, and end up with potentially a much longer period where they're unable to to cope or to work i think it's really important to to create that safety net for everybody no absolutely bit of a glum note to end on (laughs) but hopefully most of you have that safety net you have colleagues uh, and friends who can look after you uh, and look after yourselves as well so that's all we have time for. Let's wrap this up for now. Thank you very much to our guest, Major Cormac Doyle, for coming on the podcast a second time. 
You can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join our BMJ Wellbeing group on Facebook. We'd love to hear your ideas of what we should be covering next. So it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.